continuing on with our series, Esther and the Unseen Sovereign, and today we're going to be talking about making progress, and the reason Esther is just such a such a, a nice story or a good story, I, mean, I don't know if I'd say it's nice, but it's an engaging story, uh, it's just we like, we like good stories, we like to um, dive into them, we like to be captivated by them, and Esther is, is such a story. And uh, every once in a while, in a really good story, there's like a line, there's like a, a tagline, there's like a comment, and, and often that little line, in a sense, almost becomes the story. It almost eclipses the story, and uh, you start to think about uh, this one line from a story. Sometimes you even forget um, the story, but you remember these lines, and some of them kind of like become a car, part of a culture. And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, when you're coming back, you're going to go someplace, you say, we'll be back. And everybody thinks of the Terminator, or a lot of people do. And so there's these little taglines that come along and uh, just uh, reminds us of some of these. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's like a watch Frankly, my dear. He taught me, keep your friends close, but your enemies close. You're going to need a bigger boat. I love you. I know. Here's Johnny. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We've got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Good morning, Vietnam! Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? That they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom from the king of the world. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Keep the change, you filthy animal. Go ahead. Make my day. Wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. Where we're going, we don't need roads. I feel the need. The need for speed. Ow! I said it before and I'll say it again. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. <laughs> I had to clip some of those and shut them off, you know, because they got into some naughty words. But I could see some of you mouthing those words. So you know those words. Shame on my mother. She, I remember her taking me to Gone with the Wind, and she had to tell me about this one swear that was coming. And, you know, and she got caught up with Rhett Butler and would be like, Frankly, Skylar, and Scotty was like, <gasps> but anyway, so you got these one-liners, and, um, and there's another movie, I, I don't think many of you have seen it, but it's a one-liner movie, and I uh, thought I ought to show you, it's called Martin Fixes the Church Sign, and here we go. It's alive! 
There you go, Martin, he's famous now. He was fixing the uh, light on the top of the sign, and uh, he sent that to me, and I was like, that's great. And then all of a sudden, two hours later, I realized he saw the pulse, he saw the uh, write-up on the message, and that's why he did that. I'm like, oh, okay, great. I said it's a little bit late, but that's okay. Well, the reason we're talking about these one-liners is out of the story of Esther today, in chapter 4, there are two one-liners, and sometimes we just hear them in life now, not even tied with the Bible, with God, but uh, one of them is this, maybe you have been chosen to be queen for such a time as this, and some of you hear, for such a time as this, and then there's the other, and if I perish, I perish, and as we unpack chapter four this morning, uh, we're going to see how these two expressions, what they represent, can really change our lives. That these expressions, what's going on in chapter 4, really is a turning point, a tipping point for Esther and her cousin who raised her, Mordecai. And uh, we don't really know where they're spiritually at up until this point. We can guess a little bit, uh, but uh, we'll unpack where we think they might be at. But again, it's guessing a little bit. But what I want to start with the thought is this, is God has been at work in your life, whether you recognize it or not. And that's what's amazing about the story of Esther. God's name is never used. They don't even say the word prayer. Uh, it's alluded to, but it's not, there's, there's just no mention of God in the story of Esther and as uh, they were deciding whether Esther should be the Bible, there's these big councils through the years. Uh, there were some that would say Esther shouldn't be in the Bible. Uh, and uh, they went back and forth, and I can't get into all the technical reasons why they said, no, it needs to be in there. But it is in there. And uh, I think I'm happy that, that it is in there because I think it speaks to our lives uh, these 2,500 years later. So we're going to see that God has been involved in their lives, and God also is involved in our lives. I have a couple friends that uh, said yes to Christ in their early 40s, and uh, as they looked at their life and how um, life unfolded, uh, they would say, you know, they have these moments in their early years where they think that that was God specifically showing up, protecting them from something, doing something in their life, and it's pretty fantastic. They would agree to this. God has been at work in your life, whether you have recognized it or not. So let's take a look at the Esther 4, uh, verses 1 through 17 of chapter 4. And uh, you can follow along on the screen. You can open up one of the rack Bibles. That's page 346. If you don't have the paper copy of God's Word, feel free to take that as a gift. Um, also, there is an app called YouVersion. And uh, it's a free app, and it's just fantastic with having reading plans and having uh, Bibles, uh, different translations to look along with that. So I encourage you to, to get that. So chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned that all had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went out only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth were allowed to enter in it. The king didn't want to know if somebody was sad. He wanted everybody to be happy in the palace. So anybody who was in mourning, anyone who had a concern, anyone who was 
protesting or saying this is happening was not allowed in the city. And it was pretty common in uh, this day when you were upset about something, uh, you would tear your clothes, you'd put ashes on, and you would just wail. And it was like a mini protest awareness that something was going on. And so Mordecai is doing this. In every province to which the edict, if you remember, this is all over the whole kingdom, and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, many laid in sackcloth and ashes. And again, we said that there was over 10 million uh, Jews living in the empire at this time in the kingdom of uh, Xerxes. So this is a lot of people going on with this. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloths, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to her, attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. This is amazing. This is amazing. Esther is so out of touch of what is going on that she has no idea about this. No idea. She's living the good life in the palace herself, and she has no idea about this edict that's going on. And uh, we talk about this every once in a while, but you and I shouldn't be captivated by all that's going on in our world, but we should be knowledgeable. We should be aware of what is going on in our world. We should be praying for our world. So sometimes I mean, oh, I just don't want to know about that. I just, I, that, that's, that's really not right. You should be praying. You should be praying for Ukraine right now. We've done that last week. We spent a little extra time with that. We ought to be praying for our world. We ought to be praying for our government. We ought to know when things are going well and not going well. We should know when certain things are being voted on and be praying about those things. So uh, Esther is living in her little bubble, and everything's happy. She has no idea what is going on, which is pretty unbelievable that that's the way it is. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. All the details were out there. Remember, Haman also saved the king's life and never gets honored for that from an assassination attempt. And so he just kind of has his ear to the ground. It's interesting that he actually knew how much money was promised. Uh, I'm sure that wasn't necessarily in the edict that went out to all the provinces, but he knows that. Um, he also gave a copy of the text to the edict. Uh, it was in email, so they were sending it around uh, for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show Esther and to explain it to her. Again, Esther's clueless. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Haddock went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless... The king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So the rule is if you're not summoned to the king and you just kind of go in there and he doesn't extend his gold scepter, uh, 
you're gone. And it seems like this is a, it can happen. So it's not like us to say, yeah, there's this, there's this rule that uh, never gets enforced. You know, it's kind of out there. It, it, it is the rule that is in action. And so it's also interesting to know that she has not been with the king for 30 days. And if we go back to some of the other chapters, that means that uh, the king most likely has been enjoying the presence of some of his other uh, concubines and those kinds of things. And, and Esther hasn't been called to spend the night with the king. So there's some kind of tension. It's thought that they've probably been married about four or five years by now. It's also interesting, you know, when we started off the story and Esther goes to be with the king, uh, we have thought, wow, this was kind of a nice thing, and it really wasn't that nice. Uh, it was, you know, who could perform best, and that became the queen. Uh, so, again, all this is going on, and so this wasn't a great marriage. This wasn't any of those kinds of things because, again, it had been 30 days that Esther hadn't been with the king, and, and they, like, live in the same big palace. So uh, it's kind of disturbing with this. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And basically, it's interesting, Mordecai really starting to come along with his faith. Again, we don't know why he wouldn't uh, salute Haman, and that starts the whole problem. So I'm sure some of his weeping and, you know, ash and all this kind of thing is because he kind of created this because he had not taken a knee to the king's uh, number two man, the prime minister, Haman. And uh, that had upset Haman, so Haman wanted to take this uh, Mordecai out. Uh, but again, we see this thing that he believes that God will provide a way, will take care. We talked last week that it's amazing that when this edict is to take place, it's the day uh, before Passover. And for those of us who are familiar with Passover, the escape from Egypt and Moses, it is amazing that those two things are happening at the same time. So if you were a God follower and you put it together, you'd say maybe this is a hint that God, again, is going to deliver us. Because this is supposed to happen the same time we celebrate our last major deliverance from Egypt. And so that's in the background. But again, uh, you know, she's, he's saying that they're going to be taken care of, but do you want to be a part of this? And, and sometimes we have to ask ourselves, you know, God is up to doing something. God wants us to be a part of it. Uh, God's still going to accomplish his plan. And we can say no. We can say, no, I think I'm going to pass on that. And then you and I miss out on the blessing of being a part of the solution, uh, taking an opportunity that he puts before us. Uh, we read on and he says, who and who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai saying, maybe this is the whole reason. Maybe God has really used a crooked stick to draw a straight line. Maybe God has really set this all in motion. Uh, how we got here isn't a great story in a sense. It's, it's not good, but uh, you're here. Uh, God uses us, and maybe this is the whole reason you're queen. You're not queen just to be queen and enjoy being queen. You're here because you're in a position to help make a difference and save the people. We read on. Then Esther went, sent this reply to Mordecai, go, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. 
and I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. It's interesting, again, the word prayer is not mentioned here. Uh, so there is this idea that when people fast, they are praying. Some probably that made the connection. Some probably didn't. But uh, Esther, again, reaches out and says, you know, you got to be with me on this, and then I will do this. And she says, and if I perish, I perish. Again, she's going to put her life on the line. She's going to do this, but she's not sure about the outcome. Again, it's been 30 days. This king is like all over the place. So, you know, maybe he doesn't like Esther anymore. We, we just have no idea. There's, there's a lot of risk going on. So as we think about all of this, I just wanted to think about where we fit in the story and uh, think about what's going on here again uh, Mordecai and Esther aren't like super God followers. We're going to say super Christians at this point in life. They're making this turn. But earlier on, it's the thought that they, they should have gone to Jerusalem when the door opened up for that because that's where good Jews would go when they were free to go there. They had not. It sounds like they liked living in uh, the kingdom and it was comfortable and so they stayed there. Uh, so we don't know what's really going on. They knew of God. They believed in a God, but where their relationship was him, uh, we're not really sure. Uh, but they definitely were cultural Jewish people. They understood the things. Uh, they didn't always live them out, but they were cultural. And, and we can see the same thing in, in our Christian world. Uh, uh, what happens when a cultural Christian leans on Christ? And we're going to say that there are some of us who uh, grew up going to church, uh, grew up with all the ins and outs of everything, and it's a part of our culture. Uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, big family deals. We, we pray because that's what we do. Um, and it's not to take away from you honoring God, but there's this idea that it's more of a religion than a relationship. And so you're a cultural Christian, and uh, we need to come to terms and ask ourselves, are we that kind of person? Are we just, it's kind of like our, our heritage more than a personal faith that we own in our heart. And so with Mordecai and Esther, there seems to be a little bit about this going on. And somewhere along the line, they lean into their relationship with God. Obviously, Christ has not been born yet, uh, but they, uh, they understand the faith system and, and what the Old Testament's all about. So we read this, uh, knowing the correct password, saying master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my father wills. And we see other passages that talk about it's just not obeying to get your way in. It's obedience is a reflection of a changed heart. Paul writes this in Ephesians, saving is all his idea, God's, and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we've done the whole thing. Again, it's grace. We don't earn our way to God. Even the best of us just fall short of that. He provides through his son, which we just uh, remembered when we celebrated communion. And it's God's thing. It's not our works. It's, it's his work in our life and our putting our trust in him. I'll read in Romans. With your whole being, you embrace God setting things right. When you say it right out loud, God has set everything right between him and me. Scripture reassures us 
No one who trusts God like this, heart and soul, will ever regret it. So you and I go from a place where we are a cultural Christian, and all of a sudden we go to a place where we're actually leaning on Christ for our salvation. In my life, I grew up going to church, so it would have been very easy for me to become a cultural Christian. The Spencer family, we just do church stuff. We go on Sunday, we do this, we and, and all of that stuff, and I even got baptized, and it could have just been all cultural. But somewhere along the line, when I was young, uh, God actually changed my heart. It wasn't just a head thing. And so when you and I place our trust in Christ, lean into him, say yes to him, we go from being a cultural Christian who's aware of all this stuff uh, to being a real Christ follower where it changes our hearts. Then we get to uh, Mordecai, and kind of as I look at Mordecai, I might classify him as a casual follower of God. He understood it somewhere along the line. When a casual Christ follower leans in, all of us at some time can be casual with our faith, and uh, we need to continue reminding ourselves not to be casual with our faith. That's why communion is so powerful, because it, in a sense, is a recalibration of our heart. And in Revelation, we read this, Then the people, the people I love, I call to account, fraud and correct and guide so that they'll live at their best. Again, that's that conviction. It's not about feeling guilty. It's so that you and I will live at our best. Up on your feet, then, about face, run after God, look at me, and I stand at the door, I knock. If you hear me call, open the door, I'll come right in and sit down and have supper with you. And, and sometimes we, we take this verse out of context. Uh, sometimes we use this verse for somebody who has never said yes to Christ. We say, you know, God stands at the door. And really, if you read the context of Revelation, this is talking about Christ followers. This is talking about people who have said yes to Christ. And it's, it's kind of weird to think that then Jesus is on the outside of our lives, uh, the intimate place of having dinner and fellowship. He's on the outside knocking on the door. And what's interesting is you see this painting often depicting this, and in most of the paintings, there is no doorknob on the outside of the door. And the significance of that is the um, artist realizes that the only person that can open the door of your heart is you, and the doorknob has to be on the inside. So if you go to picture after picture after picture, you're not going to see a doorknob. Jesus knocks but he can't open the door. You have to open the door for him. And again, this passage is referring to someone who follows Christ. So you have to ask yourself, how often do we, in a sense, uh, act in casualness with our faith, and Jesus is actually outside of our closeness of life, knocking on the door, saying, hey, can I come in? Can I have supper with you? Can I be close to you? And, and we have not opened the door. Again, this is for Christians. And so when we celebrate communion, it's a good reminder to say, have I kind of like ushered Jesus out of the center of my life and he's outside and out of the goodness of his heart, out of his love for you, his love for me, he's knocking on the door. And sometimes, at least in my life, when I get into those situations, I turn the volume of the rest of my life up so loud, I get busy, so I'm distracted because I don't want to hear the knocking. It's not like he's banging against the door. It's like, that and you got to quiet down to hear that because he doesn't force himself into our lives uh, he loves us but he gives us free will so obviously the question is is where at with our faith 
Are we casual? Is, is Jesus on the inside having dinner with us, communing with us, speaking into our life? Or is he outside knocking on uh, the door of our heart and we're kind of ignoring that? And that, that's really not a good place to be. And for Mordecai, somewhere along the way, it was knocking on the door. And finally, he says yes and opens up the door. And when that happens, and when you've had him on the outside, there is this idea that there ought to be some repentance, there ought to be some uh, sadness, some forgiveness, not just being sorry, but a sadness that's this repentance that, that means I'm going to start to try to change some of these things in my life. I love what Joel says, uh, now come back to me with all your heart, cry and mourn and don't eat anything, show that you are sad for doing wrong. Tear your hearts, not your clothes. See, it's funny. Don't do the external stuff. Do the internal stuff. Come back to the Lord your God. He is kind and merciful. He's not going to say, I told you so. He's kind and merciful. He does not become angry quickly. He has great love. Maybe he will change his mind about the bad punishment he's planned. So in other words, Joel is speaking to where the people of Israel are at. Uh, they have just, uh, for years and years and years, I mean years, hundreds of years, just walked away from God, and he's knocking on their door, and he wants the door to be open. He's not going to break it down himself, and uh, when you and I live according to our own ways, not God's preferred ways, uh, there are consequences for that. Yes, there's forgiveness, but there are consequences. Uh, you know, you do something, whatever that may be, and yes, there can be forgiveness, but there are consequences for that. And we have to understand that. And sometimes uh, God lightens the consequences a little bit. Sometimes it's restoration. Uh, sometimes you and I are in a relationship with somebody and uh, we've done it wrong and uh, for various ways. And all of a sudden the re relationship is fractured and God will come in and use that. And the consequences will be diminished as God works in that person's heart and God works in your heart. But we have to remember that there are consequences for our actions, even when there is uh, forgiveness. So we have a casual Christian. And then we also have this idea of a compromised Christ follower. What happens when a compromised Christ follower leans in? And to some degree, all of us, again, are compromised. None of us live perfect lives, but there are moments where we're more compromised than others. You've got to remember, Esther won the king's heart with, with a good night of sex is basically how he, she became queen. How that all turns out, how that all happens, uh, she's compromised. Uh, we can make comparisons between Daniel and Esther, and, uh, you know, she ate the food. Daniel didn't eat the food. Uh, it goes on and on and on. You could take a look at, at Joseph. Uh, Joseph, um, not from the New Testament, Jesus' father, but Joseph from the Older Testament, multicolored Joseph, uh, uh, jacket, coat. Uh, he, he would not sleep with his master's wife, and uh, it creates trouble, but he, he doesn't do that. But Esther definitely is compromised, yet there's opportunity to lean in. So all of us in moments like this, even though it's not fun to think about, ought to ask our, where are our areas of compromise? How can we lean into Christ? Not let the compromise be a block, because God will forgive us, but lean in even though we are compromised. Remember, it doesn't matter what your history is. It doesn't matter what your ability is. It matters what your availability is.
And so God takes our life where it is at. So if you're casual, compromise, if you're more cultural, God will take where you're at and continue or begin a new work in your heart. And it's not about you earning your way. Christ is taking care of that. But in response to Christ's love, then I want to live a life that pleases him because he's my heavenly father. I want to make him proud, not because I know my love hangs in the balance with him, but I, I just, I just am, I, I'm captivated by I want to please my heavenly dad. Um, we read in Esther, if you keep quiet now, help and freedom for the Jews will come from another place. But you know your father's family will also die. And you know maybe you've been chosen to be the queen for such a time as this. No matter who you are, where you are in your life, I believe God has you intersecting a certain situation and you have an opportunity. Maybe it's not saving a people like Esther is going to do, but you can be involved in making a difference. And... Uh, rather than being captivated by the palace. I mean, Esther, again, doesn't know what's going on. Mordecai has to explain all this. She wasn't watching the news. She was totally unaware of the edict. It's just mind-boggling that she has no hint of this. So we have to look at where we're at and engage with where God has put us. Uh, we need to understand what is at stake. What is at stake? God will work, but what is at stake if you say no to him? What if there is a piece of this puzzle and you're the piece that if it gets into the right spot, the picture becomes beautiful? I sometimes think of a local church as that way. We are a puzzle, and all of us have a piece in the puzzle. And when we all get into place, the picture is beautiful. But when there's lots of missing pieces, most people don't want to do a puzzle where there's five pieces missing, where there's one piece missing. So know what is at stake. Your life matters, not just for yourself, but it matters for you to touch other people's lives. And sometimes we think, well, if I'm not involved, not engaged in my faith, I keep it to myself, you know, uh, I can just kind of fly under the radar. And with Esther, Mordecai points out, either way, there's a risk. Either way, you're in trouble. If you kind of huddle down and just kind of keep to yourself and live your life for yourself, you're in trouble. If you take a step of faith, there's trouble. You're, you can't avoid trouble. In this world, you just can't avoid it. Jesus talks about that. We live in a broken world, so if you're trying to huddle down and, and live in this holy huddle and, and be to yourself or whatever, and it, it's just not going to work. You're, you're in trouble either way. And then also understanding you are where you are for a reason. We've, we've talked about that already. You are where you are for a reason. Uh, Moses understood that. You know, the story of Moses, we're going to see it coming online more as we uh, get, to, get to Easter. Uh, the good old Charlton Heston one, you know, he... He, he, he sees his people and he engages. Uh, we read, Moses grew up and became a man. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose not to enjoy the pleasures of sin that last a short time. Instead, he chose to suffer with God's people. He did this because he had faith. And if you remember the story of Moses, there's a little 
little tension there. Moses wasn't all in at first. He kind of, can't you get somebody else? I can't talk well. And Aaron comes. It just goes on and on. But he got to the place where he realized he needed to be all in. He knew he was there for a reason. When you and I try to keep our faith totally private, totally isolated from our greater world that we live in, we have to realize that there's going to be these moments, these tension moments where we either had to let faith out or not, and uh, they will come. Uh, private faith will at some time have a stress to be a public test of faith. It's happened for Moses, it's happened for Esther. This will happen for you. And if you don't pass the test, God will bring another test. They just kind of continue to come. Or you can live in the palace and just kind of write everything off, and uh, that just is not the way to live. You see, we need to realize that uh, as a Christ follower, even if we're not a Christ follower, this world is kind of messed up, and there's risk. Risk is woven into the fabric of our lives. We can't avoid risk even when we want to. We live in a risky world. Esther realized this. She couldn't just stay in the palace. She needed to step out. That's why she says, and if I perish, I perish. There's no guarantee that she's not going to have trouble. Esther was not confident that her life would be saved. She was confident that God's purposes would be done, and she bet her life on God's purposes. And so when was the last time you and I bet our lives on God's purposes? Like Esther. She had to take the risk. She steps out. She doesn't know if it's going to go well for her. She's just like uh, Daniel and her friends. She steps out. So, kind of wrapping things up, when a step towards Christ is followed, what, what do we do? What passive thing in our life do we need to exchange with active? Where have you been passive and need to get active? And just a couple questions to kind of trigger that because we're not going to answer all these questions in this moment is first, do you have purposes in your life? Do you have them? Is it just to kind of live a happy life? Or are there purposes that involve you uh, being a difference maker with your faith? Do you have purposes? What do you live for? Is it just a, the American dream, or is there a lot more going on? And then, and then do you have plans? And, and Esther did this. She, she had a purpose. She gets her people together to fast for three days. Uh, she has plans of how to do this. And along with her plans is she has a prayer. And a prayer is really a reflection of your heart. What are you praying about? What is heavy on your heart? So if you and I want to get engaged, if you and I want to really be taking these steps, not casual with our faith, not um, compromised, uh, not even just a cultural Christian, we need to step in and start to engage with this. So I'd like to end with this question here is what opportunity has God given you to make progress? Mordecai, Esther are all making progress. What has God called you to make progress in when it comes to your faith? Let's pray. Grace Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for a story like Esther where we can see ourselves in the story. Help us to digest that. Help us to see where we're at in this story. And uh, as we've already talked about, help us to take the next step. Help us to take a 
uh, lean in and trust you if we're just a cultural Christian. If we've been casual with our faith, help us to repent and move forward and engage. And if we have some compromise in our past, let's not have that compromise cause us to stop taking steps forward. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you have a plan for us, you have a purpose for us, and we've asked that that would be so much on our heart that it would take the form of a prayer that shows up on the outside of our lives as we live. We just thank you in Jesus' name.